The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Well, I'm joined in studio by the Minister, and it's a long title, the Minister of State at the Department of Rural and Community Development and at the Department of Social Protection and at the Department of Children, Equality, Disability and Integration and Youth, uh, Joe O'Brien. We're going to focus on integration this morning. Minister, good morning and welcome. Thank you very much, Pat. Um, your brass plaque outside the door <laughs> must be very large indeed to accommodate all of those titles. But we want to concentrate on uh, integration, particularly and migration. Now, you went to Clare. Yes, I did. <clears throat> Excuse me, Pat. Um, yeah, so look, I mean, I suppose we're all aware of, of what happened uh, in Inch last week and, and the week beforehand. Um, I suppose it's it's... It's one of a number of issues that we've seen in terms of... Now, you made a deal, you know, that there would only be a fixed number at the moment staying there. And then when all the fire certs and everything come through, that perhaps more. But did you know what you were going to see or were you ambushed by what you found? Uh, No, I I wasn't ambushed. Look, I I went down, um, I suppose, in, in some respects to make up for the lack of uh, an engagement process that we would have liked to have done. Uh, The difficulty that we have at the moment is that when we get new international protection accommodation agreed and contracts signed, we have to move it as fast as we can because we have still a number of people unaccommodated, still some people on the streets. That means that we don't have the run and time that we would previously have had in terms of being able to engage with the community. But did, did you always, ag- even when the, the pressure wasn't on from yeah. particularly those seeking international mm. protection? Previously, we, we would have had a number of weeks at least and run in. Uh, the problem with Inch was it was a matter of days. Uh, and I think in that period of time, uh, it's very difficult to get the message conveyed that we want to in a coherent way and in a, in a way that can, can involve dialogue. Okay, so well. it, it didn't happen, but you went down and you had dialogue. Yeah. Um, what did you make of their concerns, though? Because, you know, it's the kind of hotel when it was open as a hotel uh, with uh, some holiday accommodation uh, exterior to the hotel that you drive to. I mean, it's yeah. out of the way, uh, to put it mildly. So you'd expect tourists, families with cars to fetch up there and spend their holiday there for a few days and tour maybe the county. If you were living there permanently, there wouldn't be a lot to do. Uh, To be fair, and I met five people, the five people I met, all their concerns were quite reasonable and a lot of them uh, had to do with actually the welfare of the men staying there and, as you mentioned, uh, the transport connection options for the men staying there as well. Now, it is part of the contract that there is uh, transport on site and that the men can go in and out to, to Ennis uh, on a regular basis during the day as well. And a lot of what they were asking about is in t- was in terms of supports for the men as well. And I suppose I've committed to and we've started the process of uh, developing a, a support and educational program for the men. And that has already started. It started earlier this week as well, because they wanted to see that uh, the men were in a good position to actually uh, move on and get involved, uh, work eventually as well. We do hope they'll be able to work within a period of time as well. That should kick in in a month or two as well. So a lot of the concerns were reasonable. And I think in all of the new places that we've opened, a lot of the concerns have been similar. And it's that first week is always the most difficult because it's a new location. It's a new set of people in there. Often it's new management as well. And the community is new to the yeah. idea as well. So it's it's often the hardest point in the journey of a new accommodation yeah. centre. Now, now, people are making reference to the fact that you have, uh, you know, a large enough cohort of Men, young men, you know, in their uh, maybe late teens, early 20s, 30s, whatever, all 
together. And that's not a normal social milieu. Perhaps in a, a boarding school it is, but it's not a normal social milieu. And that kind of compression can lead to problems. People from varying different backgrounds, varying different experiences, many of them claim to be, you know, the victims of war. They, God knows what they've seen. Um, how do you how, how do you justify that kind of milieu? Because it wouldn't seem to me to be the ideal social mix. Well, it has to do with the configuration of the buildings and and how we can accommodate people as quickly as possible. I would say there are many locations around the country where it's working well. And while there might have been concerns with some of these at the start, it does work well. I mean, where they're, uh, they're Bar- all male cohorts. Yes, in, uh, you yeah. know, uh, you know, Boris Akane is a good example. Ross Cray. Uh, there's been other places around the country as well. And we actually spoke to the people um, in Inch last week and I mentioned this to them and we'll we're going to see if we can try and uh, connect them up um, with situations where it did work out in the end as well. Look, it's it's all about pressure and space and how quickly we can give people shelter and safety and the kind of buildings that we can do that okay, uh, now, as, as quickly as possible. The numbers the have multiplied this year of those seeking international protection. We know all about the Ukrainians who have a special uh, set of privileges under EU law, but the numbers seeking international protection have multiplied. They've actually gone down a little bit on last year, yeah, in terms of the trends, in terms of January and February, yeah. Oh, it gone down, but they're yeah. still... They're still very significant and they're still... I mean, if you go back to 2019, for example. Yeah, we're still dealing with large numbers as well. And like Now, why do you think that is? Because the war, you know, the world is a war-torn place. Yeah. There have been famines, uh, crises, disasters uh, ongoing in various parts of the world. Add into that the war in Ukraine, as I say, they're a special yeah. case. But why do you think that we're getting such an influx of people from disparate parts of the world to Ireland? It is. It's not just Ireland, I suppose, as well. It is a European phenomenon. All European countries are experiencing this at the moment. Uh, I think there's multiple reasons for it. I, I think COVID and the ending of COVID, obviously, people's ability to exit a country and get out of a country during COVID was very, very limited. I think that's definitely a very real factor. But as you said, there are conflicts all around the country of different kinds as well. And we are seeing quite an, uh, uh, a large move- movement of people across the world at the moment. And Ireland, as one of the better off countries in the world, is going to be one of the destinations. And I think there's an acceptance at government level and indeed at European level or reception and accommodation systems for people coming in here seeking protection need to be bulked up significantly. I now, mean, what do you mean in terms of quantity? In terms of our scope of being a scale and scope of uh, proper reception centres uh, to be able to take people in and assess their applications quickly it, it needs to be of a larger scale. Um, like the white paper model, I think, is still the template in terms of how we do this, where we have large reception centres, uh, purpose built, uh, probably now that's going to take forever. state land. We're looking at a site already to get the first one going in terms of. Under but it's the going white to have paper. to be built from scratch. Uh, most likely we could, it's possible that we will be able to acquire other ones as well, suitable buildings as well. And then the phase two of the white paper would involve community based accommodation as well, which we have started on that as well. That said, we're not as um, advanced in it as we possibly are. But ultimately, I think we're we're potentially looking at um, uh, an accommodation system for people here seeking protection that could be three times what we had uh, last year as well. Uh, and that's what we probably need going into the future based yeah. on current patterns. Now, um, we've we know the stories uh, about people arriving here with no papers and they arrive on airlines. And we had a report from Barry White about that. Um, that seems like a ridiculous situation that they've got on a plane with papers. They fetch up at immigration with no papers. Now, I understand there may be uh, people who are, uh, you know, people smuggling effectively uh, and 
that they're being paid by the people, you know, they're given a passport, it's taken from them by this uh, people smuggler before he or she gets off the plane. They collect all the passports and so leave these people still on board the aircraft ready to uh, deplane with no papers. Is, Is that what's happening? Or are people deliberately trying to mislead? I think it's very important to try to put your uh, step in someone else's shoes here when they're in a country that's got an oppressive regime that's very often a failed state where there's very questionable human rights standards in many cases. In those countries and in those situations, it is very often not possible for someone to get a regular travel document to exit the country. How do you know? Oh, when oh, they arrive? Oh, almost, no, almost by definition. This it's, is really it's, important because it's... it's, it's I understand I've heard all it this. Discussed we've we've and, passed this many times that, and, 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 that some people cannot have papers, yes. cannot exit, they have to exit in an, an, an illicit way. Yes. They have to sneak out, basically, and make their way across um, Europe sometimes and other parts of the world to get to what they regard as a safe haven. I understand that. Yeah, they have to do what they can to stay alive. They have to do what they can to save their family. That has been the case for a long time as well. And sometimes that will mean using documents that are not that are not standard documents. And there are many people who have done that legitimately. They have a legitimate claim and they've been granted status because of because of their legitimate claim as well. And how do you you do anything to get out of the country if your life or family is in danger? The identity of the person because they have no legitimate papers. How do you know who? you are letting in. There's no way to check up. There's no kind of DNA check or fingerprint check or any biological check that assures you that people are who they say they are. There's a whole very detailed process the International Protection Office uh, undergoes. They have uh, detailed uh, country of origin information. They have lots of procedures and checks and balances in terms of delving into someone's case as well. And there's a whole interview process and repeat interview process and verification of documents and efforts to get other documents and verify stories. And so I mean, on do so they forth. take pictures, for example, of someone who claims to be from a particular country and try to get in touch with the authorities of that country to make sure that, for example, they're not a criminal, not a wanted person? Uh, I, I, I don't know the detail of it, but what you described there could actually be extremely risky for someone who's, whose life is in danger and they fled a particular country and regime and are trying to hide from that okay. regime. But how do you assure yourselves that the person who says they're fleeing from this, that or the other is in fact fleeing from this, that or the other? How Uh, do you know? As I said, the whole set of uh, um, uh, processes in terms of interviewing, checking, looking for other documents, verifying, looking at uh, country of origin sources of information as well and liaising with other authorities in other countries as well. Country of origin, though, would be difficult if, the, if, there, is a, if there is a dangerous regime there as well and the person has fleed from their life. Mm. Uh, but there are extensive checks and balances and not everyone gets refugee status in the, in, in the okay, end of now, the later as well. That's uh, yesterday on the programme, Barry White uh, had featured uh, two uh, people who were living in tents, uh, only arrived here in recent days. One came from Tunisia, had lived in France for quite a while, and then eventually got into a container at the payment of a thousand euro to some people trafficker Mm. and fetched up in Belfast and took the bus or the train down from Belfast. Now, someone who's lived happily in France and whose second language would certainly be French rather than English. You're wondering how come they end up in Ireland? I actually listened to that interview and uh, there was no indication that the man lived happily in France. In fact, if I recall... Oh, he, he said he, he was being pursued. But France yeah. is a huge country. Yeah. From the tip of it to the top of it, it's infinitely larger than, than uh, well, many, many times larger than Ireland. So, I mean, is it credible that someone is coming to Ireland simply because Ireland is a safer place 
than the UK, for instance, because he came from Belfast. He had all, therefore already entered the UK. Um, Look, I mean, we're kind of getting into the weeds. I mean, Tunisia and France have very strong connections. But you've got to ask yourself what the man is running from <clears throat> if he goes into a container and he he expressed he he's awareness of the danger of going into a container and he paid 1,000 euros to do it as well. you got to have to think, what is what is that guy fleeing? Uh, so, I mean, or it's dangerous. It's very, it's very, what, very what dangerous to second-guess people What is he well. looking for? I mean, the word is out that our social welfare system, <coughs> our benefit system is actually quite generous. Uh, and maybe, I mean, does the government never ask itself, is this a possibility that people are, you know, looking around, seeing where's the best deal for me? Where can I get the most? and pick Ireland because we are, as you say, wealthy and generous. Look, I've worked in the area of migration for over 20 years. I, I've, I've never met a migrant who's come here based on checking what the welfare rates are. People come here because the country is stable. People come here because we have a functioning democracy. And ultimately, people come here and leave their own country of origin as well, I think, because for similar reasons that our own mm. people did in previous what about the Because other guy? there's opportunity. The guy from the Caribbean from that you from also heard family. yesterday. Um, we don't know which country uh, he came from. He came from the Caribbean and he ends up in, in Ireland on the streets living in a tent. Now, that's not an ideal destination. But why would someone from a Caribbean country want to come to Little Old Ireland? I mean, do you I've ask asked, yourselves that question? I, I, well, absolutely. His application will be assessed and the country of origin information will be assessed. I just think it's 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 a little bit dangerous to second guess everyone who comes here looking for protection. I think our first reaction has to be uh, that we take them at face value and look at their personal situation. And then take look five the years to process them. Oh, well, I would agree with that. That's way too long. And it's not five years at the moment. It's down to 10 months and that's increased dramatically in the last two years. The I mean, as time. long as I can remember, since direct provision was set up, we've been calling on this programme and other programmes for the whole process to be speeded up in all justice. Like children who are perhaps babies when they come here, they're of school going age when the decision is finally reached. And that's not fair on them that suddenly they may find themselves exiting from the country into no man's land. Uh, absolutely, that's not fair on them. And it's one of the reasons I signed up to the programme for government as well, that we would dramatically change that situation as well. Processing times have been dramatically changed even in the last year. Uh, we were, you were looking at 17 to 24 months last year. We're down to 10 months now. And I, I heard Minister Harris speak earlier this week as well about his commitment to getting more staff into the IPO office this year, which has essentially doubled uh, in the last couple of years as well to push those processing times mm. further down as well, because that will help everyone, now, I think. I think it's important to say that most people coming here are probably genuine that they are fleeing uh, some sort of unacceptable situation in uh, the country from which they've come. Uh, there used to be the whole Dublin Convention thing whereby people had to stay in the EU country uh, in which they first landed. Whatever happened to that convention? Uh, Dublin Convention is, is, is still valid. I mean, I would but, say... But why does it not hold? Because people cannot actually um, fly from many places directly to Ireland. They have to come through a third country. You, you will see in a lot of those cases their case being transferred to the country that, that where they landed as well. I, I would say a lot of people come here uh, and genuinely make an application under protection. And they, they may not get it. That doesn't mean that they weren't um, trying to scam the system in any way. They just possibly didn't understand that their specific circumstances wouldn't fit. And if you have an opportunity to make a, uh, your life safer, 
uh, to protect your family. Uh, and if you think an application for protection will do that, I can understand why. No, I can understand that totally. But also we've been pushing again and again for a proper visa situation. There are economic migrants who are looking to have a better life for themselves and for their families. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Generations of ge- and generations of Irish people did precisely that. Um, why not just have a proper visa? You're like an economic migrant. We need workers. Mm. If you're qualified, you're willing to work, in you come, but we'll give you a visa. What's wrong with that? Yeah, we, we do have that. It's the work permit system. Uh, Minister Coveney is over that. We've seen... Tying people to particular employers, which has given rise to scandals in the past. And it's, it's opened up quite a bit because of the labour situation at the moment as well, in terms of the occupations where you can get a work permit. It's broadening uh, almost every month, I think, in terms of what is an, an eligible occupation to apply for a work permit for. And you've seen the, the numbers have gone up uh, recently as well in terms of successful work permit applications. Now, um, how many centres do we have right around the country for for immigrants um, who are maybe in the process of being processed? Gosh, uh, you, on, the, on the spot there now, I don't have the full figures. No, but I mean, I, we, I, we're I, talking about more than dozens. We're talking about... Well, in, uh, since January last year, I know we've opened 150 new um, settings for international protection applicants. They will be of very varying size yeah. from, you know, down to 10 to a couple of hundred people as well. Uh, I would say in the majority of those as well, they've opened well and the community has accepted them as well as well. And I think that's the bigger story that's probably not as interesting and I understand why that's the case. But by and large, the response of the Irish people to people who have come here, especially in the last 18 months looking for te- protection, has been extraordinarily welcome. And it's it's remaining that by and large as well on the ground and in communities okay. across the country. Now, the, the reason uh, perhaps I was pursuing you so much about, you know, those who should not be here and who are not processed properly, not turned back, uh, you know, they'll quote the Australians they have done on this programme. You arrive in Australia, you don't have the papers, you're turned back. You arrive in the United States, you don't have the papers, you're turned back. We don't necessarily want to be as draconian as that. But, you know, when people hear uh, or suspect that there's scamming going on, it it creates a political climate which is not nice. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the the evidence of what you call scamming, I'm, I'm not sure what it is exactly. Uh, to be honest with you, people are making claims for protection. Uh, they're assessed. They either get granted uh, or they don't. If they don't get it granted, they, they're asked to leave the country. And by and large, people actually leave the country. And when you're in that place where you've been refused, you're not entitled to anything here in terms of state state services. Are you concerned about uh, the border? Uh, you know, we heard from one person at least, and he knew of more, and Barry White in his uh, investigations uh, knew of more, who just simply get to Belfast, and it's an internal flight, and the DUP would not have it any other way from any uh, any airport or ferry in the UK. Um, can't be asking for papers to move from Coventry to Leeds. Therefore, you can't be asking for papers to sail the Irish Sea. Um, is that a concern? Look, I think ultimately we have to look at where the person came from originally. Uh, their path here, as I said, is going to be defined by the urgency of the situation that they had to leave as well. Are there people crossing the border? Yes, I think that that's clear. Uh, but you've got to look at their, their point of origin and why they left there and what they had to do to get to get mm. to our Ireland as well and, and see it in the in the round, I suppose, as well. 
Now, uh, you're in the process of converting some office blocks uh, to uh, migrant accommodation, and there will always be people complaining, saying, well, that's in the middle of an industrial estate. You can't do it there. But, you know, there are creches in the middle of industrial estates. Uh, there are nursing homes in the middle of uh, industrial estates. Your reply, I presume, would be needs must. Absolutely. Look, we have we have people on the streets, um, you know, the Minister O'Gorman is is answerable as well uh, in terms of uh, a court case that's that's pending at the moment. We haven't been able to meet our, our international obligations of being able to give people basic shelter. And that's a really grave situation. So we have to look at options we would never have looked at before. Uh, and this of the idea of floatels, which if you'll pardon the pun, was floated uh, a number of years ago and rejected at that time when maybe ferries were available on the second-hand market quite cheap. It might be rather more expensive to do it now. Yeah, my understanding is the department is looking seriously into that and that is because of the situation I've described in terms of people on the streets. We are looking at every possible option to give people shelter in a safe situation. Do you have any rules of thumb about the proportionality of uh, the numbers of migrants from wherever they come that go into any particular town or city or county? I mean, a big city like Dublin can absorb, obviously, uh, quite a few people without anyone actually hardly noticing. But we heard from Mayo where they claim that, you know, too many, uh, too much of the population of the county is now represented by migrants. Do you have rules of thumb about that, that that you may change the culture of a place, the nature of a place, if you get the numbers wrong? Certainly when locations are being looked at, uh, the level of services uh, in that location or near it but are absolutely... But pure numbers, I mean, in addition to the medical services and all those other services, pure, purely in terms of numbers, if you get any large cohort of people arriving in a, you know, a small place, they're going to have perhaps a disproportionate impact. And Do you have any rules of thumb about that? Uh, I suppose the quick answer is, is no, because numbers is, is a fairly basic metric. You have to see the fuller picture of a town as well in terms of, as you said, services, access to transport as well. But going back to your own phrase, it needs must at the moment, and we have to weigh that up with the situation of of people on the streets. Um, So much uh, in your brief, (laughs) all your briefs. But there's one other thing, nothing to do with migration, and that is philanthropy. Tell me, what is your initiative on philanthropy? So over the last year or so, we have, or I have been chairing a group, um, a national advisory group on philanthropy, with a view to, I suppose, taking the next step in developing uh, a government policy on philanthropy. Uh, Philanthropy has worked very well, I think, in Ireland before, in small and and limited circumstances. There's huge untapped potential. We don't really have a very strong culture of philanthropy in Ireland. I think when people in Ireland think of philanthropy, they'll often think of people who went abroad uh, made their made their fortune and have decided to maybe. Yeah, I mean, give the universities back. have been endowed by many wealthy yeah. people, and the likes of Chuck Feeney and so on come to mind. I think what this policy is about is trying to grow it uh, and develop it, and develop an Irish philanthropy as well. And we're going to look at a variety of areas to do that. Uh, we need more data and research on it. We need to stimulate it and incentivize. Does that mean more. tax breaks? Uh, there's no decisions at the moment on that in terms of it is a budgetary matter to use the phrase and I think at, uh, in terms of all no, the but discussions I mean, you, you, you get a tax break for a donation to a recognised charity for instance that's that's the current status at the moment as so, well so but we if you to, wanted to give to a university do you get a tax break? 
uh, well, we, we, we have to see what's doable as well. And it's important that whatever incentives we do put in place, that the state ultimately benefits from it as well. But we have to do a lot of capacity building as well, because there's huge um, potential here for the community and voluntary sector, because philanthropy can really fund innovation. It can fund fast responses. It can also fund independence for the community and voluntary sector as well, to be able to speak the way they want to as well. Sometimes... You mean if they're not getting government. state money, if they're getting private money, they can... Have a go at you. <laughs> well, you know, and this is healthy. This is a healthy thing in a democracy. And I've worked in the community voluntary sector as well. And, you know, government and community voluntary sector are both mature enough to have a bit of, I suppose, uh, critical friends, uh, critical friendship and, and, and criticism going on as well. So I think that's a good thing. But uh, philanthropy has huge potential uh, in Ireland. Uh, we need to grow a very Irish type to just help innovation, help research, help new ideas as well. And there's some good examples like the area based child programme, which government have actually looked at and taken on board as well as a really good example of something innovative. Well, the minister with so many titles, but this morning, principally Minister for Integration, uh, Joe O'Brien, thank you very much for joining us in studio. Thank you, Pat. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.